Welcome to Opposable Thumbs, a podcast where Taylor and Rob chat with creative people of all kinds about their creative accomplishments, failures, and lessons learned. Sydney Fernandez is our guest this episode. Greetings, Sid. Hey. My name is Rob Ray. I use he, his gender pronouns. I'm a user interface designer and an artist, and I make music and objects using the name Shimmering Trash Pile. And I'm Taylor Hokinson. I'm an artist, educator, DIY enthusiast, CAD CAM evangelist, noted tall person, Midwestern Viking, and I'm a he-his kind of guy. Hi, I'm Sid Fernandez. I am a user interface developer, and I have like 9 million hobbies, most of them creative, and I use she-her pronoun. I'm so excited to talk to somebody who just outwardly defines it as a hobby. I feel like that really takes the pressure off in some ways. You know what I mean? Like Rob and I have been talking about feeling uppity or guilty or weird about, you know, defining ourselves as artists. Is there a reason that you don't pick terminology like that, Sid? You know, actually, I was talking to some people about that today. A lot of the things that I do, I would consider art, but I grew up very math, engineering focused. So I never came around to like adopting the artist title. Everything was always craft or a a hobby. I'm not sure where that line is. I mean, I think every single person we've talked to is in search of the line, but maybe we should just forget about the line. I don't know. Doesn't the line just cause us problems, Rob? It feels so useful, but then it also feels so useless. We don't need your lines. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Sid, it's great to have you on the podcast. I know of a few wonderful things that you've made, a few of them being cyberpunk console disguised as a book. Also some really interesting weapons of sorts and clothing. And I know that you participate in, at least I think of you as participating, correct me if I'm wrong, in some like live action role playing activities. I do. Cool. Just say LARP, Rob. We all know what you mean. Yeah. 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 I am a LARPer. Yeah. Nice. It would be great, of course, for you to talk about whatever you think would be most interesting to talk about. But I think one of the things that didn't really occur to me until I started hanging out with you is what a kind of nicely expansive hobby or craft live action role playing is. It seems like it lets lots of people bring other creative pursuits to it, objects making or sewing or other things. And I was just curious if you felt that way about it. And then um, also like what was most interesting to you about live action role playing? Yeah, I I came to LARP kind of the opposite way that most people do. So a lot of people get started in LARP with Dungeons and Dragons, and then they want to step a little bit further into like live action role play. And it's an extension of their role player. They come from theater or like haunted houses and stuff. And they want to keep that kind of energy and excitement going. I came to it from classical fencing. So in high school, I started fencing foil And that was kind of fun. But then I ended up jumping over to Sabre and I fenced Sabre for like seven or eight years. And at some point I started doing martial arts and like every step was a step away from kind of that traditional structured fighting towards fantasy. So I went from Olympic three-weapon fencing, fencing Sabre to martial arts to fighting rapier in uh, the SCA, which is a semi-historical, semi-LARP. It's kind of a weird mix. Uh, It's the Society for Creative Anachronism. So they play historical characters or made-up historical characters from a time period, and they will weave their own cloth, spin their own fibers. It's very craft-oriented, but also like 
they suit up in full metal armor and beat the hell out of each other with rattan swords. Or in my case, you know, dress up in some lightly reinforced garb and fight with blunted rapiers. Then the step from that, just a little bit closer to fantasy, was I started playing Amped Guard, which was a different boffer LARP. No longer any connection to real life. We're fighting with basically foam bats. And that's kind of what you'd see more in like movies or popular media, where people are dressed up in kind of fantasy armor and just beating the hell out of each other with sticks. Wow. Is that where the term buffer comes from? I was unfamiliar with that one. I don't know if that's where it comes from, but buffer is a very common thing in, in types of LARP. Mm-hmm. And then from Amp Guard, which is, it's more combat sport. So it's, you meet for the day, you run around in a field, usually four or five hours of games like Capture the Flag or Escort the VIP. Like it's very Counter-Strike kind of games, but with throwing tennis balls at each other and hitting each other with offer weapons. That's awesome. And it's really fun. Yeah. But there's still kind of like, it's mostly a sport. Like it's mostly a game. Okay. And then the step further, I started playing Twin Mask, which is the game that I've now played for a few years. It's very, very high production value. A lot of the people that play come from, you know, Hollywood prop making or costuming, and the production value of everything is very high. You go and you play a character for a whole weekend, starting at like 8 p.m. on Friday night, and then it's over at around 6 in the morning on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you kind of stay in character. Everything you're doing is in character. Your weapons look like real weapons to the best of your ability even though they're made out of foam, really high emotions, like a lot of role play. People get really into their characters, like your friends die and like people will be crying, like real tears. Wow. <laughs> it's an experience. Wow. But like that production value gets super high. What is the etymology of Twin Mask? Um, I have no idea where they came up with the name. Yeah, cool. Uh-huh. But it's, it's a really fun game. It's one of the bigger LARPs in America at this point. It's the biggest single site LARP in America. Okay. I think we're getting around like 300 people, give or take, on a, a weekend. It's like 350 people. Wow. Could you describe the fighting aspect of it? I, in my head, I have like two types of medieval fighting, which is everybody's in a field just battling to the death all at one time. And then there's like structured one-on-one kind of fighting or team fighting. How do you end up killing someone? Yeah. <laughs> so it depends on the rule set. Things like the SCA, rapier is very one-on-one. You might have team versus team. But it's very, from the books, kind of classical fencing. Okay. And things get a little bit silly, like you'll have a themed match, pretty much just what you would imagine, like one-on-one. If you watched a movie where two people are fighting with swords, that's pretty much what you get. Okay. They appear to have lost their domain recently. I don't know if you have any buddies in the scene, but it looks like TwinMask.com is down right now. Uh, I think we have a different one. I think it's TwinMask LARP. Okay, got it. And and also just to interject, I, I think we're we're picking up your dog pretty good right now. I don't know Probably. if there's a way to put put a door in between you or not. There's a door and a wall. <laughs> <laughs> it's very loud. If that's the way it is, then we'll just roll with it. Yeah, we'll just need your dog to introduce themselves on the podcast now. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> you have many dogs. Yeah, I have five dogs at our house. 
What are their names? Oh, wow. I only detected one. I guess I, I need to listen more carefully. Only one of them's been barking. Let me see if I can actually move my computer, because I am now on a laptop. So I should be able to kind of sneak away where they're less nearby. Yeah, I have Frank, Stanley, Katie, Albie, and Mr. Bojangles. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Did Mr. Bojangles get named first or last? Uh, he was named first of all of these ones. And then after that, you decided to go slightly more normie after name number one? So Mr. Bojangles is my mother's dog, and she recently moved in with us and lives in our auxiliary living unit. I got further away from them, so hopefully they won't bug us too much. Perfect. I can't hear them. Yeah, same. It sounds great. Five five dogs. Do they do they know they could like mutiny at this point and just sort of take over the whole thing? They're super tiny, so like there's five of them, but it's like collectively about a hundred pounds of dog. Uh, it's a Voltron dog. <laughs> yeah, <nice. laughs> I don't know, Sid, if you're a science fiction fan or not. I think it's a safe assumption, but there's a great. I'll have to look at the name of the novel. But have you ever read the novel about? There's this alien species that's made up of pods of dogs, so their intelligence is based on how many dogs are in the pod. I have not. That sounds super interesting, though. One of my favorites, although not favorite enough to remember the author, of course. <laughs> uh, Rob, have I ever told you, did I tell the story in the podcast about the time when I was a youth in middle school or something, and I went um, far too heavily armored to a, to a uh, Renaissance fair? No, do tell. So, Sid, I, I too have a background in fencing. Uh, Epe was my jam. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, weirdly, we had this little fencing team at my high school in Cleveland, Shaker Heights, Ohio. So I kind of got into some of the same stuff as you did, although it didn't go quite as much to LARPing. I was more of a D&D guy, but we did have a bunch of swords around, swords and knives and all that. So I showed up at a Renaissance fair once with like a thousand <laughs> swords strapped onto my body. But, they, you know, they were all like actual weapons. I mean, they were probably blunt and, and not very great, but they could definitely poke somebody. So at the entrance... There were some people in character who were tying off people's weapons with strips of green fabric. The idea being, right, that you'd go, you know, drink too much beer and you couldn't just pull it out and whack somebody with it. Yeah, you got a piece bind up. Right. So the guy was really aggravated with me because I was clearly just this kid that had a hard on for swords and stuff. And so he had to take, you know, half an hour to tile my shit down. And he was trying to stay in character. And he, and he and through gritted teeth, he said, thou art certainly armed to the hilt, my lord. <laughs> and I just remember feeling so embarrassed and just having to stand there while he administered to my, my costume. You're getting me right in the field right now. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That would be a great t-shirt also, that quote. Yeah. We have a t-shirt printer at work. That's the first one I should do. Oh, nice. Definitely. I know a few people who would probably fit that description. Uh-huh. Nice. Oh, yeah. So, Sid, I, I'm taking a look at, um, you shared some pictures with us of the various stuff you've been working on, and I'm looking at what kind of reminds me, maybe is it like an Aztec weapon or something, that kind of wooden mace, sword, club kind of thing? I cannot, for the life of me, pronounce the word. Uh, I think it's Makwa Whittle. It sounds good to me. <laughs> so at Twin Mask, one of my friends plays a an Aztec-inspired character because mm -hmm. he's native and like he wanted to bring a little bit of his culture into the game. Yeah, and he has this beautiful kit that has like leather armor with like turquoise emblems all over it and like reinforced with these stone plates and it's beautiful, beautiful set of equipment. And then mm. he has this just super lame, like $20 foam steel Western sword 
Mm. And I was like, Thomas, you need to get a better sword. And he's like, I'm like, I really want to get this Makwa Whittle. He's like, I want one, but they don't make these as LARP weapons. He's like, I'm paying a crafter, like, you know, it's a couple hundred bucks easily. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll do it. I'll make it for you. He's like, I, I don't have the money. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I don't want to get paid for this. I like making things sometimes. And I don't like keeping so many things around my house. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> and if you're not paying me, I won't feel bad if it takes me six months. <laughs> Also smart. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot to learn, Taylor. (laughs) Those are two very wise statements right there. Seriously, yeah, take notes. Well, I was in particular with that piece, and we can show images of these while people are listening to the podcast, but I was really impressed by how you accomplished the wood grain. I was curious if you'd talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so that that was my first time attempting wood grain in foam. I wasn't sure it was going to work out, and was super, super happy with how it came out. The core of the weapon, I don't know if I sent you the whole build setup from like beginning to end. Mm-mm. Well, not me, at least. I just see the, the finished product, I think. Gotcha, gotcha. So it's an L200 EBA foam around a graphite golf club shaft. Mm-hmm. So it's really light. The foam is just kind of glued and pressed together. But then I carved it with a wire brush to get the wood grain texture. And then it's sprayed with a few layers of Plasti Dip so that it has a skin and some rigidity. And then I hand painted the wood grain, then did a like a dry brush over it to give it some like color definition. Yeah, the the knot in particular is really impressive. Yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah, it's beautiful. The knot started out with me slipping while using the Dremel tool to carve the little obsidian pieces in the side. And I was super just like frustrated. I was like, oh shit. Like I just, and I looked at it. I was like, that kind of looks like a knot though. And I just kind of went with it and was just like happy little trees, happy little trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm picturing, yeah. Uh, Bob Ross in a full LARPing outfit. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. Listeners, we occasionally drop a film strip sound like bong into the, into the podcast. And when you hear that, that's because we switched the image on you so you can see what we're talking about. So. Right now, you should be seeing an image of of this amazing weapon. Rob, the other thing I'd love to hear more about, too, is the sort of cyberdeck scene. Yes. This is something I was just kind of tangentially aware of. I, I do a bunch of Raspberry Pi projects as well, and I'm kind of familiar with the whole mechanical keyboard scene. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? I was kind of obsessed with the idea of a cyberdeck ever since we, we talked about it in um, the sci-fi drawing club at work. And then I found out that like people actually made cyber decks using like the Raspberry Pis. And I was like, I need to do this. And I kept being like, no, like, I don't need to do this. Like, I'm not going to use it for anything. It's a waste of money. And then I was like, no, I think this is just an art project and I need to make it. I went through a bunch of different ideas for like what I wanted it to be. Like I thought, how could I incorporate kind of the fantasy side of my life with this computer tech side of my life and make something fun? And at first, I did a bunch of mock-ups and cardboard of different ideas, because like I didn't want to do a really basic cyberpunk cyber deck. Like they look really clean and they're nice, and not for me. So some of the first iterations I went through was I made like a monster hunting kit. So it was like a little cupboard that would fold open and have the keyboard fold down. Yeah, and it was cool, but it wasn't right. And I was like, what if I made it into a book? 
the idea was kind of like the a callback to like Johnny Mnemonic when you had the street preacher who opens up the giant Bible and it's got the screen inside of it. And I was like, that's that's kind of the thing. I was like, but it needs to be like the Necronomicon, but it needs to be the Technonomicon. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. We should maybe describe the book a little bit. I can take my best shot if you want, Sid. Please. Let me know if I'm wrong. So a cyberdeck I think of as largely home-built computer, typically using something like a small form factor computer, and that could be a Raspberry Pi or one of those Intel has a line of them as well but they're essentially you know small computers often i think of a cyber deck kind of based in the cyberpunk genre's description of a cyber deck which feels like a little kind of portable computer but kind of chunkier than a laptop and that like often there's a full-size key or a set of mechanical keys and the screen is typically kind of quite small or stylized in a certain way and said i really liked yours because it almost looks on the outside like a spell book or something like that it has a really nice kind of tome look to it and i believe you and i had had talked about it because i was so psyched about it when i saw photos of it is it made out of a cardboard the actual book yeah what is the word for it um i lost the word so the same type of cardboard like particle board that they use to make hardcover books is what i made it out of i also do book binding it's one of my nine million hobbies (laughs) you were talking about how you get into all these different creative pursuits, but you describe yourself in the intro by your developer position, right? What's your day job skill again? Remind me. Uh, I'm a user interface developer. Right. So do, do you think that there's a benefit to having a million things that are really explicitly not related to your job? Or do you see your job as mixing all these things together because they're all creative in different ways? It's very intentional that my job and my hobbies and creative pursuits are not the same. Yeah. When I first finished school, I I have a degree in game development and I jumped straight into like the gaming industry and started working with startups and indie studios and doing freelance development. And it was really hard to tell like when I was done working. Yeah. Because it'd be like, Oh yeah. Like I just spent, 10 hours today doing game development, but my creative pursuit right now is also game development. I'm using the exact same programs and doing the exact same things. And it just, it was really draining and I felt burnt out all the time. Yeah. And when it was time to kind of leave games and go into user interface development, it kind of left all of that creative energy. Like I do some creative things in my day job, Mm -hmm. but it's mostly solving problems, analytical, and very engineering focused. So then when I want to do something creative, I have lots of creative energy, I have lots of ideas, and there's no deadline, there's no pressure on it. So if I want to spend three months making a weird computer that no one really needs or will use, (laughs) then I can. (laughs) Rob, this conversation's making me think that we're doing it wrong. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my mind is kind of blown right now. Although you keep it pretty separate too, though, right? Do I keep my work and my creative time separate? You know, I try to, but I, I fail also kind of hard. I think it's because partly, Sid, you may have this, this experience as well, but I think sometimes to your point said it's so easy to blur the lines sometimes just because my own interests are so varied like if i was like mm-hmm. if i had such a very specific set of creative pursuits then i feel like i could keep 
keep the guardrails on them a little bit more. Like I could protect them, you know, like if I was really only into, I don't know, sewing, uh, right. Which is something I really like to do. I could sort of keep it contained maybe, but then I would probably be like, but I have a 3d printer. I could make a loom. Like, you know, like I just can't help myself, but like end up with some sort of like, like, like terminal window open, (laughs) you know? So, um, yeah. That's how a lot of my projects end up. I keep my, my creative pursuits to projects. Yeah, right. That's kind of what works for me. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm going to sew. And I, I start sewing projects. And then it's like, well, but I liked that. But this needs to go with it. And it just becomes everything that I do until I'm burnt out. Yeah. So is there, so do you, do you think that you require an audience or do you feel like just the making of the thing is, is a satisfying endpoint for you? I used to feel like I needed to sell the thing afterward Mm. Mm -hmm. and it needed to like have a purpose. And after like years of therapy, I found that it's really just making the thing that I want to do. And I usually don't even want it afterward. That seems like a really healthy way to think about it. Yeah, that's cool. That's why I'm making a Macquawiddle for my friend. <laughs> collage has been a thing I've been trying to pursue a long time ago. I was doing collage on the inside glass of like old tube TV sets. So I would like bust the back glass out and then lay the collage in on the glass of the tube TV. Who knows how much like mercury I huffed and stuff like that. But um <laughs> And that was really interesting to me because it was like collage, but like on a 3D object, like a TV set. Anyone who follows me on Instagram knows that I've collected at least one TV set at this point. Yikes. <laughs> off the off the curb. But what I realized is it frees me to then decorate that TV set however I like and then put it back on the curb. And so I'm trying to think of it as a street art practice so that I don't have to hang on to these piles of stuff. So like you mentioned, like yeah. wanting to get rid of it is very freeing. And so I'm going to I'm going to experiment with that, I hope, this spring. Reminds me of the monks that make the sand mandalas and then sweep them away at the end of the production. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I wanted to get into doing sumi ink uh, painting, and I bought a sumi set and like I I've done a couple of the paintings. I'm not very good at it, but I saw this like watercolor practice paper where you you get it wet and it just holds the image there for a little while. Mm-hmm. And I've done so much painting on it because like you finish painting the thing and you give it like five minutes and it dries up and it's gone. Oh, that's cool. So in that case, are you just painting with plain water or does it actually just plain water? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. That's really cool. I, I had a buddy in art school who just took a piece of cardboard and made 500 paintings on it in water. And then the exhibition was just a list of all the painting topics and then a little bent piece of cardboard that didn't look like anything. Oh my god! Wow, <laughs> wow, that's cool. I think that guy then went on to form a a rep group that toured Japan, and then he broke his arm stage diving. And I've I've never been able to get in contact with him since. Mm, wow, he was the the one kind of true artist in my undergrad, and all the rest of us were just kind of you know standing in his shadow. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> was the broken arm the art piece you think that then like healed? Big Mike, you're out there somewhere. He he was just, I mean, you know, in, in retrospect, some of it was pretty, like, you look back and you're like, oh, yes, this is the sort of Flexus thing and the Duchampian thing and whatever. But he just, he lived it so hard and he was also just so weird. So I remember there was a critique that we had and we all went to his studio, which was a total mess, which was the, the normal 
way of it being, but he had written fuck you in little tiny letters all over all of these different objects in the studio. So if there was any kind of close examination, you would find it. And then one of my fellow students burst into tears and she just said, oh, this is so hard because Mike, you know, you're sort of like, you're the one real artist among us. And to have you reject us in this way just really hurts me. And um, it was really moving. Yeah. And I, and I, feel, I think that, he, you know, it kind of got through his sort of take nothing seriously exterior and really made him think for a little bit. But yeah, he was just, he was immensely talented. I have no, I have no idea where he is right now. Wow. Big Mike, you got to get on the podcast if you're listening. Come and see us if you hear this. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Sid, are you working on anything right now that you've got like in process that you want to chat about? Um, I, I recently got a pottery wheel because I wanted to, I wanted to do some ceramics. I did ceramics like forever ago back in college and I was pretty good at it and I liked it. And through like happenstance and coincidence, I ended up with an electric kiln about a year ago. Oh, cool. Actually a little over a year ago now. And it's just been sitting in my garage and I was like, you know, I should get a pottery wheel to go with that. So I, I made my first like horrible little clay bowls after not having touched clay in, in many years trying to kind of get back into the feel of that. And I want to do some pit fired pieces in my, my fire pit in the backyard. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. There's an, a Japanese process. Raku. Raku. Yeah. Thank you. Does that involve burying? It's, it's the thing that, that winds up with that really uh, crackled surface, right? So it can end up with a few different surfaces. It can end up with a crackled surface. You can do a horsehair Raku, or you can use these really metallic glazes and you can get really like bright, like shining metallic colors out of it. But they're like super poisonous, so you can't use it for food. <laughs> ah, nice. I had a sculpture teacher way back in the day who would make her glazes just by putting, you know, the greenware in the kiln and then putting a bunch of highly preserved foods inside of it, like Twinkies. And then all of the, at least she claimed, all the chemicals would then leach out of the Twinkie and form the, the glaze on the piece. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's called smoke glazing. Oh, oh, this is an established thing you're familiar with. Uh, yeah, so usually they don't do it inside of like a gas kiln. They'll do it inside of hill kilns. And they do, uh, it's called a hill reduction kiln, I believe. And you put a lot of different things like food waste or driftwood or wet plants or cow manure, like all sorts of stuff that's going to smoke a lot. And it's going to have a lot of impurities in the smoke. And depending on the impurities, as the smoke passes it, the surface is in a like a very porous state and it will get soaked into the, into the pottery as it vitrifies and it comes out really beautiful. That's cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, I understand that better now. I, I think when I was a, a ute, I was somehow under the impression there was so much crap inside the Twinkie that it, was, it formed like a glass <laughs> on the top. But you know, clearly that was more of an established thing that I misinterpreted. Taylor, I know classes just started for you, but are you working on anything fun? I've got this kind of ever-growing project I'm working on with Stephen Lee and Kay Dart. So we're the sort of bi-coastal collaborative and we're going to be live streaming an iron pour via Twitch. And so we keep adding on features. But right now, we we're just talking to Sid about this earlier with OBS, Open Broadcast Software. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm coming to love it. So, so the two things we're using it for, A, you can use it to make a virtual camera. So you can put OBS in between you and Zoom, for example. 
And then you can bring in, you can layer other types of media on top of your video stream and then add them and subtract them with hotkeys. Trying to do a thing where I have like animations and stuff that pop up when I'm interacting with my students so they have something more interesting to watch than just a plain four-hour lecture. But, you know, and simultaneously not trying to be like an old person that's saying, you know, like, I get the memes too. So that's a challenge. The other thing that we're doing is we found that you can get really inexpensive track phones. So for 40 bucks, you can get a fairly low-featured phone. And because you're not worried about connecting it to the cell network, that works as a wireless camera, like a wireless IP camera for OBS. So we're going to have all these track phones that are strapped to the top of people's helmets that are at different stages of the pour crew at this iron pour. And then K is going to be announcing it almost like it's a football game. And we're going to have all these animations like Sports Center that come up but that are related to iron pouring specifically, like tickling the bod and peeking the tweers and stuff like that. That's great. Yeah, so we'll have information about where to see the stream and so forth. And then also... We've got a Python API that's scraping Twitch so that if you put in these codes, you can activate uh, animated propane fire and, and so forth. So it's a ton of moving parts, and it's finally starting to come together. So hopefully uh, that'll come off at the very end of March. So that's what I'm working on. That sounds super cool. Yeah, it is. that sounds super cool. Taylor, could you remind me, the currently you have some iron letters, and what do they spell? Fine with this inspired by the uh, This Is Fine of, of webcomic fame. We just added some words so we weren't right on the money and just so that it, it makes a little more of a symmetrical presentation. So those are all cast iron, and then you can charge them with propane with a Twitch comment, and then they have this big burst of flame when you do so. That's cool. Yeah, Rob, what are you working on? I, I know that you're kind of in the middle of a big transition, but have you got any projects happening? I took two weeks over the kind of New Year holiday and did a ton of creative space renovation and all that. So I've been really steeped in things like cable management <laughs> and that kind of thing. But, you know, one thing I did realize is I think I'm going to take this as like a new, instead of having a New Year's resolution or something that's like a kind of mental or emotional goal or something, I think what I'm going to do is try to do some sort of physical transformation to my space at the beginning of every year because it's been really great to to just be in a new environment for the new year, you know? Sure. Also, you know, working at home and stuff, it's just... It's so easy to become incredibly bored with your surroundings, too. You know, it's just like, oh, here I am at my desk again all day. It's been nice to change all that up. I don't know, just change up how everything looks and stuff like that. God, what else have I been doing? I'm reading Animal Farm again. I do some kind of educational mentoring uh, with a friend of mine. And we're rereading Animal Farm. I'm learning a lot about the Russian Revolution. I didn't know this ever, but a lot of the animals are kind of metaphors for Lenin and all these other people. Sure. And so it's been just a real education like uh learning about the russian revolution with her and how high drama wild it was and that kind of in between time between world war one and world war two which is something that i felt like i just didn't absorb if it came up in school or whatever back in the day have you seen the movie the death of stalin no do you recommend it i think it's free on streaming platforms right now although i forget which one yeah it's it's really funny Clearly, you're talking about a period in time with all these state-sanctioned murders and everything, but it's completely absurd the lengths everybody had to go to to stay on the right side of, you know, whoever was in power. And then Stalin bites it, and then there's all this infighting with Khrushchev eventually coming out on top. I think it's done by the same director who did Veep, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, cool. It's so funny and so dark. So it's, yeah, it's one of my favorites. I'd really recommend it. That's really cool. I've been drinking a new non-caffeinated tea. 
You? <laughs> kind of boring, but I find that hard to believe. I'm not really a tea drinker, but I am not. Sarah Schnett, who, who is a previous guest on the podcast, gave me some of this tea the other night. And I was like, this tea is amazing. And so like I went and got some. It's called Celestial Seasonings. It's not going to break the bank or anything. It's called Bingle Spice, maybe. And it's a, like a kind of non-caffeinated chai like flavor and it's quite delicious the other thing i'm ramping up to do other than some collage work and some zine work are both kind of in my like top of my to-do list and fun list i've been wanting to change my like modify most of the pieces of clothing i own to make them something more than just a thing i bought so i'm starting to think again about silk screening but the fun thing about silk screening is it's so messy <laughs> so i gotta really like get ready for it because it's a lot of ink washing but you don't want to just go punk roots and just go with bleach or something yeah bleach or a stencil i should because the immediacy is something i think speaking of trying to get out of work brain i think one of the things that's hard about software is it's it feels like it never ends you know mm-hmm. sure. and the immediacy and like being able to like check a box saying you did a thing is such a wonderful feeling such an like endorphin hit that maybe maybe you're right taylor maybe it's really more about the stencil and the the bleach you know how when you're playing a video game that often they have a selectable iron man mode which means that you, you can't go back and load an earlier save right it would have permadeath or something oh really okay okay i wonder if there's some way to code a overlay on top of photoshop or whatever and like every <laughs> change you make just nope can't take that back <laughs> that's a, that would be really cool get rid of control z for forever yeah, yeah. Sid, I do have to say that you turned me on to Lua, which is such a cool language. You had such a kind of wonderful description of kind of how it fit for you in the realm of programming languages. I thought Lua might be something that listeners, if they didn't know about, might want to hear about. And so I was just wondering, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but I was wondering if you could just sort of describe how you think about Lua or how you use it and and what you think it's good for. I think my favorite description of Lua that I've come up with entirely on the spot when speaking to a coworker was that Lua is like JavaScript, got drunk and started dancing on tables. <laughs> um, which is, of course, a really lame programmer pun because Lua is all about tables. Oh, hey, okay. <laughs> Lua is like JavaScript with less rules. Okay. It also like just runs a lot faster and is more performant. And because it is strictly an embeddable language, it's always meant to be part of something else. You're not going to have a program that's just Lua that runs as an executable, you can have a program that does something that Lua is either an integral part of and controlling it, or Lua is driving pieces made by some other program. Okay. The best example I could think of for that, if anyone's played World of Warcraft, all of the user interface in World of Warcraft is driven by a Lua environment which is why all of the add-ons work and all the different scripting pieces that go into World of Warcraft can be modified by the end user. And the reason that works is Lua is that embeddable environment. So if the Lua environment becomes corrupted, the engine can be like, oh, something horrible has gone wrong, and it can just terminate the Lua environment and reboot it without losing any context in the rest of the game. That's cool. It also means you can open up that scripting environment to end users without leaving the rest of your engine hackable. Also good. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Wow. It does seem like you've you've used it for various things. And I was just curious if you could maybe share some of those things so people could sort of think about how it might, might be useful to them. Your World of Warcraft example was great, but I just didn't know if you had any others as well. The first game engine that I made right after finishing college was a C++ engine that 
all of the level definitions and scripting and gameplay were done in Lua. It was really fun just because if you're doing anything in C++, you have to recompile, you have to worry about, did I break something? And Lua just doesn't care. You could have a button that's in the Lua environment that sends a signal to reload the Lua environment and just kind of code while the program is open and just do all sorts of silly things. Oh, that's cool. We're getting pretty close. So I'm going to read a few things and then we make space for our guests and for ourselves to share inspirations or links or their own websites or social media or just whatever they think is like a cool thing to go to on the web or something to think about or craft or whatever. So Taylor, I'll, I'll ask you and then Sid, you can go and then I'll go last. How does that sound? Sure. Okay. Listener, we'd like to send you an opposable thumb sticker. If you share a podcast episode on social media, rate us on iTunes, send smoke signals, or some other cool thing to let people know about the podcast, we will mail you a sticker. Just contact us on our Instagram at opposable underscore podcast or at our email, opposablepodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to give a shout out to Wesley Ellis, Charlene McBride, Adam Mayer, Deb Chatra, Blondie Hacks, Nick Kantar, Walter Kotendu, and David Bellhorn. They're our top Patreon supporters. And if you'd like to join them in our League of Patreon supporter badasses, please go to patreon.com slash opposable thumbs to sponsor us. Anything you can donate really helps keep the podcast going. Our podcast is dedicated to providing a harassment-free experience for everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, knowledge of subject matter, or religion, or lack thereof. We actively support an inclusive environment, and we want you to be a part of it. Taylor, you got any things? I know you talked a little bit about some of the cool Twitch stuff you're doing, but do you have any uh, stuff you want to share with folks? Yeah, thanks to Tim Sway, who's uh, been a former guest and gives us good feedback. He mentioned to me on Instagram that if I want to be practicing my full F chords, I need to work further down the neck on the fourth or fifth fret because my barring chops are pretty lame. So I thought that was great. And then in terms of games, I'm trying out a bunch of new board games on my family. My kid's five. And then my wife and I are trying to find things to do that don't just involve staring at Netflix. So we've been trying a bunch of new games. And then also my Dungeons and Dragons group has been trying some new ones. So Thousand Year Old Vampire, a one-person role-playing game. And it's effectively a structure for creative writing where you write the diaries of a vampire that's so old it forgets the things that it did at the beginning of its life. Uh, so that one seems really cool. And then there's another one called No Thank You Evil, which is a derivation of like a simplification of Dungeons and Dragons for kids. So I'm going to be running hopefully a session with uh, five and six year olds that will involve that game. So yeah, really getting into uh, classic board games and writing and that kind of thing lately. Wow. That's cool. Sid, do you have any uh, things you want to share your own work, anything like that? URLs, etc. I don't know. I don't really post my things publicly anywhere other than like my Facebook, but my Facebook is a horrible mess of political activism and gay stuff and mostly yelling at bigots. So we'll leave that out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Tantalizing. Uh, <laughs> I guess try every new hobby I come across and read the manual after I've broken it. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Sid, Sid has managed to put in more words to live by per per minute per unit of time than any other guest in recent memory, Rob. Totally. We should just make a zine of like the wisdom <laughs> that's coming out of this podcast episode. <laughs> I have a couple of just like weird doodads to share. One of them is listeners to the podcast and people who've come on the podcast are familiar with, I guess what I call like a spring clamp. It's like a thing you can get at a home store, like a Home Depot or whatever. They're typically red or orange. 
it's like an oversized metal clothespin almost. Mm-hmm. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I have like 30 of them. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, they're amazing. And recently I got a pack of the mini ones that are two inches. They're smaller than a clothespin in length because they're only two inches long. Uh, but they have a lot of holding power because they are you know, spring-loaded just like the other kind. And I have found an infinite number of uses for them. It's been really great. They've become like my go-to thing for closing up any kind of chip bag or coffee bag or something like that. I've been like using them to hold together wads of cable. You know, if you're just like, oh, I just want to like hold all these cables together, but I don't want, you know, um, zip tie them. And I've run out of the Velcro-y, strippy stuff. And so I was like, I'm just going to use these. I keep finding that I keep using those for that. And there's all sorts of other cool uses. So if you look on, you know, whatever you buy, stuff like that online, it's called a mini metal spring clamp. They're really great. And they're as cheap as the regular spring clamps, you know, they're like 50 cents a piece or something. For like, so a 12 pack is like six bucks. The other thing I continue to be stoked about is I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I, I have to reshout it out. Canon makes this printer called the Selfie and it's horribly named S-E-L-P-H-Y because, <laughs> because why not? Like an Irish Sprite that'll drown you in a lake. Yes. <laughs> What's great about it is you can print straight from your phone. It comes with a pack of paper and this ink that's not like it's a roll of different ink sheets so it's not like an inkjet printer for things to clog or anything like that so you don't have to worry about clogging which is a tragedy of inkjet printers it's quite small it just prints out kind of four by six size sheets but also do like business card sizes which i haven't tried but what's great about having the immediacy of printing out photograph and color is you can use it for all sorts of things like i said i was like kind of rehabbing my whole studio space and so i packed up about nine to 11 boxes of books and so i just took a picture of the books inside the box and then printed it out and then taped that picture to the outside of the box and each printout is about 30 cents and so now i can look at the box and know what books are inside there without having to open up the box so i can stack all the boxes with the photo facing outward and i can see all the books but i don't have to like dig into each box to find the one i'm looking for pretty smart dude and I am so psyched about like that kind of use of it. It's really great. And the other thing I did is, you know, like junction boxes for wiring. I started taking pictures of them when open. So then and then I just stick the photo of it next to the junction box so I can see it open without having to open it. So little things like that. It's been really handy. So the Canon selfie. It also comes with a battery pack, but I just plugged mine in. Taylor, I've graduated from dusting. I hope you're happy. Oh, wait. I don't, I don't want to uh, yuck on your yum, dude. You know, if if you want to dust all day, be you. <laughs> I said I was obsessed with dusting for quite a few weeks there. <laughs> Every recommendation was dusting related. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was I might need some of those too. <laughs> yeah, I think all of us have things that have like weird nooks and crannies and knobs and stuff. And if you got a nice uh, feather duster there, it comes in quite handy. The older I get, I'm the one with the nooks and crannies. Oh uh, yeah, you could dust yourself. It's that kind of podcast. <laughs> Sid, I f- I feel like we only scratched the surface. Especially because you're into so many different outlets. But geez, next time there's so many other things I want to ask you about fencing and yeah, we didn't even get into leatherworking and the uh... oh geez, yeah, yeah. Maybe over the summer we should have our run of repeat guests, like inviting people back on. And of course, Sid, if you could make it, we would love to have you. It'd be great to have you back on, and we can bookmark stuff to talk about that we didn't talk about this time. Yeah, after Mars time. Mars time. That's right. Oh, Sid, I should ask you about your work life. You're doing an amazing thing that is actually ironically sort of available to the public, at least a version of it at JPL. And so I was curious if you could tell people about it. Yeah, 
thankfully, I just went through my media training, so I'm allowed to talk about things. Nice. Yes, I'm working on a few different projects at JPL, all of them related to the Mars 2020 rover. I'm working on some of the outreach things, which they will be talking about, and I can't talk about so much. Mm, uh But I've been kind of transitioning jobs from development to working in operations. So starting February 18th and going through till about October, I'll be living on Mars time. Wow. For at least the first few weeks, I will be, you know, we're running round the clock every day of the week. So I'm doing like three days on, then a half day, and then three days off. That's really cool. Is that a different number of hours on Mars? Yeah, yeah. The Martian day is about 24 hours and 40 minutes. Mm. So because we're running around the clock, but also synced up to when the Martian day is, our day gets bumped by 40 minutes every day. So every day you start 40 minutes later for your shift. Man, I I was not a space nerd when I was young, but I'm rapidly becoming one. (laughs) (laughs) We're landing at around noon, and then the next day... That'll be almost one and then, you know, one thirty two, And it just kind of creeps on until it's through the middle of the night. I just got my, my schedule for, for March and it starts with 8.30 PM and then just gets later until it starts getting early. That's cool. Landing is February 18th. Is that right? February 18th. Nice. Just a couple weeks. <laughs> That's cool. Thanks. Yeah, we now we really need to have you come back and talk about doing operations for Mars, too. That would be so cool. For sure. Well, Sid, thanks so much. It was really, really great to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of all of your creative stuff and just you as a human for so long. So, yeah, Thanks for having me.